I'll start by introducing myself for those who might not know me. I'm Kevin Griffin and a longtime member of this Sangha, meaning this Thursday night Sangha. I came to Berkeley in 1991 and I, I already was familiar with James Barris, who's the founder of this sitting group, and so found him at the time he was over on Marin Avenue, somewhere we call. And uh, then eventually in the mid 90s, the monastery invited him or he invited himself, but uh, he started to have his group over here. But James has been teaching in Berkeley, I think since the late 70s now. So, uh, but he's away and he invited me to fill in. I, he also shares this with some other teachers, including Eve Decker. Um, but uh, I used to come here every every week, uh, a certain point in the 90s for several years till I got busy doing my own teaching. So uh, I brought some books, by the way, and they are uh, just, you can take one and offer Donna if you want. The Blue Ones, Living Kindness, that's been re-released in another edition. So you're free to just take them, like, <laughs> just take them, <laughs> get them out of my basement. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really good, though. I mean, it's. I don't want you to think it's not worth. Just because it's free doesn't mean it's not good. <laughs> Although that we this is America, so you have to be careful about that. So I, I want to uh, start with one line from the suttas tonight, and then uh, go through a particular sutta. So this is a collection called the the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. In Pali, that's the Samyutta Nikaya. And, you know, I, I'm not a, at all a sutta scholar, but, you know, I do a, a little bit of reading with them. And I think I, I bring a certain kind of curiosity that to them um, where certain lines particularly or images will kind of get my attention so it turns out that the, um, so I'm going to actually look at just one one line from one sutta and then kind of go through a second sutta. But it turns out that these are in the in the Buddhist history, which I'll put quotation marks around that because it's not, you know, documented in any uh, authoritative way. But but these are supposed to be the first two teachings that the Buddha gave. Uh, and it's sort of just a coincidence that I, for me, that I connected them. I, I didn't realize I was doing that until I had, was sort of halfway through doing this connection. So the first sutta is called setting the motion, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, or the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. <laughs> I'm very proud of memorizing that Dhammachaka Pavatana. Say that three times fast. Um, and so this is where the Buddha lays out the concept of the middle way and the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. So it's kind of like, a, it's the root sutta in a way of the Buddha's teachings. And, and it's something you can go through this and study different pieces of it. And, and many books have been written about just small sections of it, like you know, one line. 
But the, when he introduces the, the Four Noble Truths, which are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the way to the end of suffering, in that first one, the truth of suffering, he has this line that it seems like he just, it's like he tosses it off. Where he said, so he's introducing the idea of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, you know, death is suffering, all, all the finer things. Union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is, is suffering. So you hear all that, and you probably would be nodding along, you know, as the Buddha is teaching you. Yeah, that makes sense. Death, uh, aging, sickness. But then this last line, he says, in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. And that's where you kind of go, uh, say, what the what? The which? The five aggregates subject to suffering, subject to clinging. So he, he doesn't say anything more about that in this sutta, as far as I've noticed. <laughs> Sometimes this thing. But apparently, so he's, he gave this to these five, he gave this teaching to these five ascetics who he had been traveling with for some time. Uh, and during the time when he was, before he had his enlightenment experience, and he was known for, he was, he was an ascetic and he was practically starved himself to death. And, but at a certain point he realized, well, that's not really working. I mean, that takes some nourishment. And that began, began then in his telling the sort of process of then uh, finding the middle way and, and waking up the way that he did. But when he did that, when he took the nourishment, these five fellows with him said, oh, he's gone soft, and they left because they sort of had seen him as their leader. Uh, among, they, were, they were like, you know, friends, but he was like the guy that everybody's looking to is going to like figure this out because they're all trying to figure out how to become enlightened. So he he comes back after you know leaving them and having this breakthrough and then he comes back and gives them this first teaching which is the first time when they go at first they're like oh it's you again and then he's like no you got to listen and then they're like oh yeah you you've got something changed here and um so they apparently they spent some time together and they're in this this park it's called the deer park in Varanasi and apparently they spent a a couple of weeks together there at least. And, and one or two of them would go into the village uh, in the morning and get food and bring it back and they would all share it. But it was, kind of, we, we have these two suttas, but the impression you get from that, uh, which is sort of commentarial history is that probably the Buddha was like teaching them all the time, right? They were probably sitting together and meditating and he was kind of, but these are the things that got preserved, these two key Suttas. So, so this is supposedly takes place a couple of weeks later, where he gives this second sutta, which is called the characteristic of non-self, or the uh, anatta lakana sutta. And here, I mean, it's just deep dive. And it's said that by the time he had, they had all heard this sutta, 
all those five guys were enlightened, you know, so pretty good. Uh, so pay attention. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I'm not the Buddha, in case you were wondering. So this is where the Buddha takes us through those five aggregates subject to clinging. That he says, in brief, suffering, they are suffering. So uh, I think before I start to read some of this, I'll, I'll give you a, a, my own take on, on what the five aggregates are. So in brief, the five aggregates are really what the Buddha points to as the, the, the elements of our experience of mind and body that create the illusion that there's a self. So we interpret these five aspects of our experience, five elements of experience, as showing, as being I. And so they, the first one is the body, and the other four are just aspects of mind. So it's basically mind and body. Because the, the details of them can get kind of confusing, but just to keep in mind that, okay, really we're talking about our physical experience and our mental experience. So, so the first aggregate is the aggregate of form or body. Second aggregate is the aggregate of feeling, which is, has a specific, a technical meaning. It just means think, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling of anything you experience. And so it's before you even have a story or even know what you're experiencing, there's like, oh, that's unpleasant. Like you withdraw from it, like before you even know what it is or, or like, oh, I want that. And, and uh, before you even really form in your mind what it is, it's just, that's pleasant. That smell, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so form, feeling, and then perception is where now we put a name on the thing that we're feeling and that we're experiencing. Now, and we're, which then ties in with memory because the way we know a name for it, the way I know that that's, I can call that the smell of bread is that I have smelled bread before and someone told me and I learned as a child, that's the smell of baking bread. Okay. And then, the, so that's the form. There's my nose and my ability to smell. And then the feeling, mm, pleasant. Perception, ah, bread. Then volitional formation or mental formations. What happens when you have that? It's, it smells good. It's bread. I want some. I'm going to get some. You're, you know, you're walking by the bakery. It's like, oh, man, that smells good. Uh, the volition, the, the intention, the motivation, the impulse is I'm going to go in there and get some. And you go in, you get it, and then, you know, you deal with the consequences. Karma is thus created, right? Uh, and then the fifth, fifth aggregate is consciousness, which is just the, the quality of, of knowing that like if we didn't have consciousness, we wouldn't be able to have, 
know that we were experiencing all this. So it's like, uh, and it's actually, a, a, there's a lot of questions about consciousness that, that I can't answer. Uh, and the Buddha's not around. So there, there are people who will try to answer it. We'll probably give, give a good answer. But um, because one of the things you can say, well, when you're asleep, when you're completely asleep, there's no consciousness. But if there's a really loud noise when you're asleep, you wake up. So there's some consciousness, but there's, you can see that a lot of the things that you ordinarily would say, you know, like you wouldn't smell anything when you're asleep unless maybe the house is on fire. You can see that that's, it's complicated. But let's just say, you know, we've got mind and body. Go back to that simple experience and that explanation. And, and so one more thing I'll say, which is, why are they called aggregates? So the, the other term for this, the less graceful term that for this, the Pali word is kanda. The less pleasant term is heaps, H-E-A-P-S, a heap. So, uh, and the reason they are heaps, it's not just a heap of five things. Each of them is a heap because your body is more than one thing. And your feelings are more than one thing. You have all these different feelings. You have technically six different types of feeling because of six senses, including the mind as a sense. And so there's, you know, six, and then there's, you know, heaps of uh, perception and heaps of consciousness and heaps of volition. So, uh, but I like, I, li I kind of like that term heaps because it, it takes any romantic idea away. It's just like, yeah, it's just a heap. And it's like my experience is just a bunch of heaps. If I'm, you know, because what we're trying to do is let go, right? And not cling to self. So one of the things that helps me not cling to self is to realize I'm just a heap. It's not really something worth clinging to. A heap of heaps. All right. So here we go. Hang on. <laughs> So the, the Buddha used this term bhikkhus. I'll, I'll try to uh, not to use it too much, but there's a lot of repetition in this, but try to stay with me. So bhikkhus, form is non-self. So introducing the topic of the sutta, right? For if form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it of form or to say of my form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it of form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. So if that's not entirely transparent, what that means, he's saying that if your body belonged to you, if it were, and, and he says that if something is a self, then you can control it. He says, if it belonged to you, if it were a self, you would be able to make it be the way you wanted it to be. Your body would look the way you want it to be. Your body would feel the way you want it to, to feel. You know, you wouldn't get sick. You wouldn't, your hair wouldn't fall out. You know, you wouldn't gain weight if you didn't want to. But you would if you wanted to, you know, you'd have big muscles if you wanted them, but you would have little muscle, you know, 
you know, you would be able to say, let my form be thus, right? And he's saying like, no, you can't do that. So it's not really yours. It's not really a self. So he then goes through the other four heaps. <laughs> feeling is non-self. For if feeling were self, you would be able to say, let my feelings be thus. Let my feelings not be thus. Well, we would all, you know, pay good money to be able to, do, in fact, we do pay good money to get that. That's why we see therapists and we, you know, meditate and we go on retreats and we get drunk if that's your thing, you know, it's to, to make our feelings be the way we want them to be. But we know like we can't. So they're not really, they're not my feelings. Well, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because don't you walk around going, I feel like this. So I'm talking about me, right? Well, that's a convention of language. But in reality, you know, you're just describing, it's more like there is a feeling <laughs> would be a more accurate way of putting it. So we go on then, you know, perception is not self. Uh, you know, uh, here it gets a little harder in a way to say, let my perception be this, let my perception not be that, let my volition be this. Let my volition not be that. I mean, which is interesting because you realize, oh, yeah, like, do I really, how much in control of my behavior am I? I mean, because he's kind of pointing to this, like, yeah, we, we control our behavior somewhat, but don't we all wind up doing things that we regret? And if you were in total control, you would never regret anything. So that, this is just his starting foray, right? Into He's trying to get across to really get this, convey this insight that what you think is yourself is not exactly a self. So, because now he moves on. Well, well, yeah, yeah, I think I'll, I'll just move on here. So, so what do you think, Bhikkhus, is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. So again, I mean, this is a paragraph that we can take part and spend, you know, a few years on, a few lifetimes on. So, uh, you know, it puts out this easily understandable idea, you know, form, and of course, we'll see feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, it's impermanent, it's constantly changing, right? Okay, nobody's gonna, somebody might argue with that, but I think most people will agree. But then he makes his point, well, what he said in here in the text is, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness, but it, we're talking using, so for the word suffering, we're translating the word dukkha. And here, dukkha has a variety of meanings, or one of them which fits here better is uns unsatisfactoriness. So is what is impermanent, is what is impermanent satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Or you could even say satisfying or unsatisfying. 
Well, there's something unsatisfying about anything that's impermanent because satisfaction implies an arrival, an end, a conclusion of something. Ah, I'm done, right? But because everything is impermanent, there's never this arrival or this full sat completion of satisfaction. You, you, know, you have a nice meal and then you want dessert. And you have dessert, and then you're like, oh, I ate too much. Or you wake up. It doesn't matter how much you ate yesterday. When you get up tomorrow, you're probably going to be hungry. Certainly within the next couple of days, you're going to be hungry again. And, and so there is no satisfaction, no lasting satisfaction. So then he makes this. This is where, again, the Buddha makes these really interesting connections and insight. Well, if it can't satisfy you and it's constantly changing, can you say that it defines you in any way? Well, how can it define you if it's constantly changing? You know, well, it, you know, oh, there, this is me. Oh no, that's me. Well, you know, well, this thought is me. Well, this sensation is me. Well, this idea is me. This feeling is me. No, I mean, that we can't claim that any of these things belong to us because they're constantly changing. And besides, he kind of is maybe saying out of the side of his mouth, because it's unsatisfactory, why would you want it to be you? Why would you want to define yourself by this unsatisfactory thing? So the, can we regard this as mine? No, it doesn't belong to me. Is it? Is it myself? Is it, is it who I am? You know, so there's the this sort of trickiness of grammar that I, I don't know the grammatical uh, terms for, but there's a difference between this I am and this is myself. Uh, but I don't know what it is. We'll leave it for now. So now we go through, as I say, all the other aggregates and, and showing that all of them are unsatisfactory they're unsatisfying they're they're all changing all the time and none of them really define us so we can't really say that this is who we are so uh, you know the buddha's the buddha's conclusion and again I, i'm not really satisfied i mean for me to be say i'm not satisfied with you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation is, you know, <laughs> I have some nerve, but it's not quite how I understand this. He says, seeing these things, seeing the, the, the truth of these things, what he calls the, the instructed noble disciple, somebody who's awake, experiences revulsion toward form, towards feeling, towards perception, towards volitional formation, towards consciousness. So I'm not sure revulsion is quite the, the word that I would, I would use to call that, describe that experience. The, there's another term that shows up in the suttas a lot, though, that I think fits better, which is disenchantment. And what I like about the term disenchantment is that it suggests that we are under a spell. And, and when you reflect on these things, you can see how our experience as human beings, because we are conditioned to view ourselves and to view our experience 
through this lens, it's very much like being under a spell or hypnotized. Yeah. And when we see the truth, when we see, I'm really attached to this body and like looking a certain way. And as you get older, you know, and, it, and you are not able to, you know, control the way your form looks, you know, that can become really painful. And, and so if you have some degree of wisdom, you know, you go, oh, this is not really worth being attached to. And it's waking up like, oh, I was, you know, in your 20s, it's like you're, you know, you're living in this kind of dream world, right? You could say. And then there's this disenchantment when you see, oh, this isn't worth worrying about anymore. You know, during the pandemic, I mean, I, I don't like to use my wife for an example, but it's a good example to me. You know, she, she uh, used to dye her hair and it was very nice the way her hair looked. It didn't look dyed particularly, but during the pandemic, she just was like, you know, I'm just letting it grow out. I'm just done with that. I'm just tired of it. And now she's got gray sort of salt and pepper hair. It's very attractive. And it's, but it's very much that kind of disenchantment. Like I'm, I'm tired of trying to put on this show and be this, person you know that try to look younger right control our form so we become disenchanted and and you know when we talk about things talk about perceptions you know that i think of perception as also very much tied up with opinions and beliefs it's like how i see things and this is like one of those places that we when we start to reflect more deeply through our practice and through i think you know study and that we start to see how our attachment to our opinions causes us so much suffering and and of course when you look out into the world you can see that that's you know just really exploding in terms of the uh, the terrible things that come through people being just locked into these uh beliefs so this becoming disenchanted is this freedom it's waking up uh, you know i uh, the other image that always comes to mind is this sort of a fairy tale you know of something kissing the frog you know and like uh, unfortunately then it turns into a man so that's not really the ideal thing a prince you know which definitely don't want need any more of them but you know, the idea that we are kind of touched by some wisdom and that we come out of that spell is, is how this resonates for me. So the, the, the sutta, here's the last few lines from the sutta. So experiencing revulsion, I'll say disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. So you're not caught by craving. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. One understands destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has, to, has been done. There is no more for this state of being, which is a classic set of phrases that shows up in many suttas. Then he finishes, the sutta ends by saying, that is what the Blessed One, Buddha, said. Elated, those bhikkhus delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, 
the minds of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So they all attained enlightenment during that talk. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll, if I figure, if I keep reading that over and over, maybe finally my taints will be liberated. So uh, we have a little time left if anybody wanted to. Yeah. And I get a variety of responses. Uh, I will suggest that someone get into therapy, for instance. Uh -huh. And the person will say to me very sincerely, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. And I say, how do you know? And they say, I tried it uh -huh. 10 years ago. Right. And I say, so the assumption here is that you're the same as you were 10 years ago. And they get a little bit annoyed with me. And they say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. I say, well, actually, no. And so on. <laughs> It wasn't really a question, but yeah, it's great. That's a great the, example. The uh, the vigor with which they hold on to that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's and and of course, that's the sort of situation where this really becomes serious, where it's not just oh, I'm going to let go and become more spiritual. It's like, no, you're probably going to kill yourself if you keep doing what you're doing because you you work in a treatment center. Yeah. I mean, not to, you know, <laughs> pull the covers or anything. Yeah, and that was the example. I'd like you to try it. Yeah. yeah. I tried that. Oh, yeah. I, I, those, uh, I can't go to those 12-step those meetings. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Uh, no, I mean, we're all faced with this, and uh, and uh, you know, it's it's valuable, I think, for anybody to look at the things. Obviously, I mean, this is this is the Dharma. This is a, you know an essential idea of the Dharma for us to keep questioning our beliefs. You know, what is it that I believe? What, especially, what I believe about myself. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we walk around in this, you know, world that we create to some degree of who we are, what we're capable of, what we're not capable of, what we like, what we don't like, and and especially as you get older, it gets narrower and narrower. I mean, you know. There's like a lot of things. In in my family, there was an expression, one of my brothers, I have four older brothers. One of my brothers reminded me that, of this expression. We don't do that. Yes. Well, that's simple. Great. <laughs> that's just something. I don't even have to deal with that aspect of the world because 
we don't do that. That's not who we are, you know. Okay, problem solved. That did not include therapy, actually. Everybody except my father went to therapy in my family, so there was that, but. Anywhere. Other comments, questions, reflections? Hey, Ernie. Yeah, I want to take a little bit of the other side, which is when people hear all this stuff about this is suffering, that's suffering, everything is suffering, the natural reaction is, well, why bother? Yeah. It's suicide, except the Buddha said, don't do that. So uh, in my experience, I've had pleasurable moments, believe it or not. And I think the key is what's the last kind of thing there is that uh, become we become dispassionate yeah. around them. And that gets to the letting go of the attachments to these kinds of things. And I think the best way I've heard it said from Jack Hornfield, he says, it's not life is suffering. He says life has suffering. Yeah. Which makes a whole different picture yeah. than what this Suda talks about. All yeah. down and gloom and, you know, just, might as, well, as I say, might as well kill yourself. Yeah, agreed. Thank you for that balancing. Yeah, so important. I mean, it's it's one of the things that so easily happens with Buddhist teachings. We latch on to one idea. I mean, the idea of not self is one idea that people latch on to. And then they tell me, well, you shouldn't say you're an alcoholic because then you're clinging to an identity. I'm like, yeah, but it has a functional purpose, you know, it's, and yeah, I mean, there's the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, you know, and then it's like, and I, I mean, I, I, I think it is, I don't know if it's the language that the Buddha uses or the way we interpret it, but clearly he's not talking about, well, everything sucks, so why bother? He's saying, you're, you're making a mistake in terms of how you're approaching this. You can be much happier <laughs> if you're not like clinging to form, feeling, perception, volitional formations and consciousness. You know? uh, and uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the question of, I mean, sometimes mindfulness is kind of pitched as a way to find, to enjoy life more. And, and certainly that's what I've found in it. You know, I mean, being awake and aware, being able to enjoy, makes it possible to enjoy things more. And I know I've read Analio <laughs> kind of tries to discount that idea. And, and of course, it's kind of crazy because you can see that Analio is very happy, <laughs> you know. So uh, it's it's uh, it it would be silly, wouldn't it, to like follow a spiritual path path that that uh, just was about being miserable, you know. I, I'm, a certain number of people would sign up for that, but I don't think it's like. There is that sutta. There, there's a, a sutta where some monks actually did commit suicide because they misunderstood what the Buddha was teaching, and th- that's it. From what I can tell, that's when he taught. Then 
the Anapanasati Sutta, which is this really uplifting practice, right? Experiencing joy, experiencing gladdening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, look. Hands up. I um thank you for your and thanks everybody for being here. I'm uh Danny and I've had the uh wonderful opportunity to um be introduced to cold water swimming, which most people um put the label of suffering onto. And I've um I'm grateful that I can I don't it's I don't I don't have to put that label on the water now. It's another gradient of warmth. It's not actually that cold. And um given me many gifts and just these lessons of perception. Um so I relate to the story tonight. Um and recognize that yeah, it, you know, that that suffering. Um, there's joy because it's so stimulating. There's just such a wonderful experience and the opportunity to go on this water hike in the bay hmm. and be among a whole world of animals, a whole other universe. It's like, right? If we're if we're willing to to shed these labels and uh, and and accept that cold and that cold, I've learned if I let the cold go right through me and allow my body to do its natural responses, my body will do its thing. And it is, and it's not, I can't control it. My body will create heat. My skin does create heat. And then I'm able to be in the water and do the do what I love to be in this, in this wonderful water universe. Um, if I allow my body to do its thing and not put labels on, that and then my mind tells my body, you know, I can't do these things. Um, so I tonight's reading really reminded me of that of the lessons um, that I've learned through quote suffering unquote. That's great, thank you. Uh, so you're really pointing to the conditioned nature of perception that you know, feeling and perception; those are they aren't just one thing like what one person can experience a feeling and they perceive it as unpleasant. Another person can have the same feeling and perceive it as pleasant. So it's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's, and, and this is again, one of those things that opens up this realm of possibilities for us. Like, Oh, is there another way to look at this experience? Like I can, I don't think I like this, but wait, is there another way to see it? You know, and, and this I find really important when working with emotions as well, because the way we perceive and label and identify and tell stories about what we feel then becomes this identity. And it's something that's one of the things I work with myself as well as with others. A great deal is perception of feeling. But perception of sensation is the same thing, just like taste. Some people like beets, and then there are normal people. No, sorry, I, I don't like beets. Um, my wife likes beets, so, but she swims in the bay, too, by the way. I sh should introduce you. 
Sorry, I'm just, you know, at my usual, you know. Oh, okay. Hi. Talking into the little wire. There's lots of things. Yeah. Um, so I experienced a lot of death over the past three years. And it just struck me that like, if life is suffering, is death the end of suffering? Um, also having had experience, I just, the amount of deaths that were in my world gave me a completely different perspective on living and dying. And so I guess <laughs> you probably don't have the answer specifically, but what, what are the attitudes around this? Like what, what happens, you know, is there still suffering <laughs> after death? Well, I can't personally speak to that. The traditional Buddhist view is that if one doesn't become enlightened, one then is reborn and then continues through the cycle of samsara, birth, aging, and death, uh, which is not a particularly uplifting idea. But I, I don't... I mean, it's to me, it's kind of one of those questions that does not require an answer. Like, why do we need to know? No, we we want to know, but wanting to know things is just another form of wanting. And it's just creating a sense of discomfort. And so letting go of wanting to know, I mean, if it's especially if it's something you can't know, right? Because human history is littered with people making up answers to things they didn't know and thus creating a lot of other problems like religions <laughs> that just claim to know things that they don't know just because they don't want to admit, want to admit that they don't know the more they're, they're uncomfortable with not knowing. So humans make up like, well, the world started with, you know, a turtle or whatever, you know, just like they just make up stories and, and then people form a belief system about it. And then, you know, and then, and then, I mean, that held, holds back science for one thing. It held back science for a long time. It was only, you know, after, you know, with the uh, Renaissance that people started to go like, well, maybe we should actually look at things and examine them rather than just like making up stories about what they are and what reality is. So. But we can't even know that. The reality is that. Right. Well, I mean. According to Thich Nhat Hanh, nothing, nobody and nothing dies. It just turns into different forms of energy, which is probably accurate from a scientific viewpoint. So, uh, but, but generally, you know, like, it, is there reincarnation or what happens when you die? I just believe, think that's a good thing to not know and to not, not worry about. There's a lot of other things I have to figure out here. No. So, one more question, and then we'll we'll close. Um, hello, this is Laura, and um, I am in recovery and working my step one. And right now, and what you told me was so beautiful, or what you said in regard to letting go and saying, you know what, we are powerless over so many things, 
And I feel like that is just a basis of great wisdom that um, I, as my friend Diana was asking these questions and I asked them all the time too, and being able to say, you know what? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And that's okay. Is just one of the most liberating, simple, beautiful things. And um, thank you so much for the language that you, the, the words that you used, which are helping me understand um, how I'm powerless over many things. And there is another way of looking at the world and everything. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, there's a, there was a famous Korean Zen master, San Sanim, whose main teaching was don't know. I mean, you know, I sat with him one time where he taught meditation. He said, when you're breathing in, just say clear mind, clear mind. When you're breathing out, don't know. And it's a great, like, it is really freeing. Like, I don't have to know. And, and, but the, you know, the bigger point, I mean, as that I take from it is, I don't know what's going to happen next. When I say, I'll see you later, that's just conjecture. <laughs> it's a plan, but there's no, I don't know if I'm going to make it across town. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, you know. Um, and, and then, you know, there is, well, for one thing, that then prepares you for the unknown that tends to happen a lot. <laughs> like, I wasn't planning on this. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, welcome to life. You know, uh, so it's a great, it's a great mantra. You know, don't know. Uh, and and um, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, he had a line, I think in Thai, the phrase is, my nay. And it means it's uncertain. Instead of talking about impermanence, he would just say, it's uncertain. You know, don't know. So let's um, sit back and we'll just do a little closing reflection. One reflection that I find inspiring for me is just the appreciation of the lineage. And when we're in a Buddhist monastery that represents a thousand years or more of Buddhist tradition, just to first appreciate and reflect on the fact that we are welcomed here by the monastics without charge, just offered this space. And that the teachings we are given have been passed down generation by generation for 2,600 years. That even the Buddha had teachers whose shoulders he stood on. 
but we are the recipients of an unearned treasure offered freely to us. So just to appreciate that these teachings have been preserved and are here and alive for us today. And what's then suggested to us by that gift is that our responsibility is to continue the tradition to practice, study, and reflect deeply so that this tradition can stay alive for the next generation and the next and the next. We offer these teachings and these reflections for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you. So nice to, to be here, be with everyone. There are baskets for Donna for the monastery and for the teachings. And as I said, help yourself to books as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.